Gabriel Lesina is a biohacker and the founder of SciHouse, a biotechnology group. This is Gabriel Lesina. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Cool. Uh, I'm here with Gabriel Lesina. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Um, <laughs> you know, I heard about you in... It, it's a story that I tell people, and when I tell them, uh, it, it just boggles the mind of a lot of people of how <clears throat> you uh, sort of put eye drops in your eyes and gave yourself night vision. Um, and this is something that uh, fascinates a lot of people, uh, scares some people, um, but I think it's sort of emblematic oh, of uh, a movement that's going on right now. Um, in biohacking and uh, gene editing, et cetera. Uh, and, and I just, I, I wanna start off here um, and see what it is that motivated you to do that. I mean, were you, were you not terrified you might damage or cause yourself blindness? Um, so let's go, let's start with the why, and then we'll get along to the, um, you know, what about the ramifications of my actions type of sure. thing. Um, so I had just been finishing, uh, my undergraduate degree and, uh, was rapidly becoming disenfranchised with the academic model, just basically because I was working in a lab, we were getting papers published and some of these ideas were really, really great. And then they kind of just like stopped. Like, uh, and this is this is something that you'll see again and again, where like research is done purely for research, and engineering or product development is done purely for engineering or product development. Both of these things, I think, when they're done without uh, acknowledging the other side of the coin, there. Uh, tend to be a little unbalanced. Uh, if you're doing product design just to design a product, you will find a product. I mean, you can patent all sorts of things. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the good thing or the right thing or the best thing. It's just you made a thing. And then on the other side, it's like research. It's like So you can figure out and understand how something works, but with out application of that knowledge, it's pretty useless. And so this is something that I started thinking about and uh, I ended up running into some people online that were part of the, the, the grinder community, not, not, the, not the getting to know people. Not the dating gap. Not the data gap, but... Um, but the other type, which was more about um, self-experimentation and body modification and, uh, and so I ended up working on a near infrared project that was about um, changing the type of vitamin A2 that you have in your body to alter the protein vitamin A structure in your eye that allows that picks up wavelengths um of of light right so like we have like it's it's the opsin uh molecule and then it binds with with vitamin a and this is how certain wavelengths of light are absorbed this is why when um, you know, you have extreme vitamin A deficiency, you go blind because there's no A that is capable of binding to the opsin. Um, and so while we were working on finishing up that project, uh, which the whole reason that we had started doing it is because I wanted to see, you know, you had these people that were enthusiastic about self-experimentation, but this is all an N equals one type of thing really crappy for data collection. What, what do you mean um, N equals one for people who don't know? Okay, well, so N equals one is like, how many times or data points do you have? And, and that's N. And so N equals one is like one data point, 
right? One person's experience. And this is not applicable to is something safe? Is something possible? Can it be recreated? You haven't even recreated the research yourself. You've done it once. You're like, yeah, it worked. And then it's like, okay, now do it again. And self-experimentation usually sticks to an N equals one model because it's just one person experimenting on themselves, right? Um, and so somebody had brought up this other thing about uh, using the, the chlorine E6, which was the, the molecule that we put into the eye drops. There's some previous research about this to affect near infra, inf, infrared uh, viewing. And, and so we started that project next. And um, this is where I really started to want to see because there was like this was like at the, the this experiment was one of the first times that people had been exposed to the term biohacking that wasn't um, like hey drink a really great coffee and put some lipids in your body because that's energy and it'll make you feel good bulletproof coffee that's what I'm talking about um, or have, have you considered getting eight hours of sleep biohack yourself into a better person it's like yeah it's called going to bed like your mom told you how to do that go to bed eat a sandwich try to go for a walk biohack um so this was the first time where there were more complex systems being being dealt with and and that things were altered in a different way and um so this was also kind of at the beginning of the whole DIY biology movement. You had a lot of people that were interested in doing biology and chemistry um, the way that, you know, the computer revolution had kind of started out. Like, you know, you get a computer, you're at home, you learn to code and you start building stuff on your own, right? Um, Biology is way, way harder for this because all the equipment is really expensive. Um, and the learning curve for biology is really, really steep. So, um, because it's a complicated system that we don't really understand. Um, yeah, so this is, so we, we got into this project and we were doing it and that was really, really neat. And then, a friend of mine posted a picture, the picture that I'm sure you've seen uh, with the black eyes on social media and people flipped their shit. Like people were just, they just went bonkers. I, I spent, there was like, like document, documentary crews there were people coming out of the woodwork to ask to be test subjects there were uh a lot of people that were like really really negative about it um and um then you had like the ethics people that were freaking out and you had the i don't know the people who wanted to make a television show about biohackers that never got picked up. And then, and then eventually they made like Netflix made a TV show. This was years. I mean, it's like, it, it, it never goes away. So like Netflix made a TV show called biohackers and uh, my girlfriend at the time, we were watching it and she's like, is it possible to troll someone through a Netflix series? Because like all of the experiments and projects and things that they were doing in the first episode, because I couldn't make it through any more of it. It like it felt weird. Like I know those people, not those actual people, but like the people those people are based off of. That show is it's science fiction. But like all of the projects that people are doing that is that are in that show are actual real projects. And I know most of those people. And so it was just a very weird, like 
fun house mirror experience. Um, and, and yeah, you were asking about like, okay, well, like what about the negative ramifications? Like, was I worried that I was going to, and it's like, I, I do actually know how to do research. I've been published before. I'm, I'm a professional. No, no, of course, but come on. No, 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 no. Like, no this is, this is, this is the answer. It's like, okay, how safe is it? It's safe. It's safe because I did my research. Like, is there the possibility for something going amiss? Yeah, sure. But I could say that about building a campfire too, um, or lighting a propane stove. Like, there's always a possibility that something could go wrong. But if you understand how something works, that possibility really decreases. And uh, somebody even interviewed the guy who did the research that we based our research off of. And he was like, yeah, um, it's actually very promising, especially with the, you know, slim resources that they were working with. And then he also mentioned that he had injected himself with the same thing. So the guy who did the scientific paper went on record saying that he injected himself with the stuff that I put in my eyes. So I feel pretty okay about it. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I mean, like, yeah. okay. So the, uh, I hear what you're saying. The, the, perhaps the sort of other way of looking at it is something like uh, Alex Honnold, the climber who, who climbs, you know, insane walls without any ropes on, not saying this mm -hmm. is as dangerous, but he's like, well, you know, a lot of people, they, uh, they eat, terrible diets and they, they sit down all day. And, you know, that's, that's a form of risk taking too. And they just don't recognize it. And it's like, okay, dude, like you have a point, but it's still to, to the lay observer seems right. wild. So, yeah. And, and so I, I think it's a little different because um, it, it's like how much you can mitigate risk. So I would put um, driving a car as a great example. So it's like, if you had never been exposed to automobiles in your entire life, like if your only exposure to automobiles had been watching movies, for instance, and television, which is kind of what a lot of people's exposure to science is like, they've watched movies and maybe read some BuzzFeed articles. Uh, this, is, this is like the full scope of their scientific understanding. Right. So if your only understanding of how cars move through reality is based off of television and movies, and then you just meet someone and they're like, yeah, I've got a car, it's in my garage. I use it every day to go pick up groceries. And the, all you can see in your head is, a giant metal box that can crush things that is run by explosions. Like, I mean, that's what an engine is. It's just a device that explodes a lot in a very hyper-specific way. Um, and also spews toxic gases and is known for running people over. Like, you would also be like, eh, that risk is a little high. And then this other person's like, no, I like took a class and I have like certification that says that I can get into the vehicle. And it, they even made it so that if you drive one of these and you don't have one of these special little certificates, then you're breaking the law. Like it's really safe and regulated and all this other stuff. And so is a lot of science work. Like it's regulated, it's safe. You just have to do the paperwork and you know, do your due diligence, just like anything else. Fair, fair enough. Um, so what was it like? How, how well could you see in the dark? The hype and the experience were very, very, um, that then overlap was super slim um, because it was an N equals one experiment. And I was hoping with the amount of enthusiasm that somebody would be like, cool, we would love to see some actual data come from this. Um, but nobody did. They wanted to 
give me money to do other stuff. But everyone was really, really excited about the eye drops. And then they're like, so this other thing. I'm like, okay. So I ended up doing a whole bunch of other stuff and I never got to revisit it. That's my biggest, my biggest gripe actually is the, um, just the amount of enthusiasm and then the lack of follow through from anyone that could have supported the work. Um, oh, crap. Sorry. I went off on a tangent. No, you're good. I'm, I'm just curious. What was it like? Like how far in front oh, of you, could you right. see how dark was the so, road? So, um, so we did, we did, um, uh, basically pitch black um, for normal eyes in one of the rooms. Um, and then we were in a, in a field, a slightly wooded field um, in the middle of the night with no moon. And so the experience was muted. Um, and again, this is another reason I wish we got more data like especially some sort of like subjective data, like or quantitative data, like uh, if we had had um, an electroretinograph, for instance, that would have been great. Um, but the way that it felt to me was, you know how like when you're walking in the forest and sometimes you're walking in the forest and like things are always smacking you in the face, like no matter how, much you're trying to see where you're going you're just like always running into some random branch and then sometimes you're walking in the forest and you're like yeah this is cool i'm not smacking into everything i like to see just enough just enough that like you're not going to trip over the root. the person behind you will trip over the root, but you're not going to trip over the root because you can see just enough so it was very mild um but uh, it was, it was enough. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things that people don't really think about when they're thinking about all of these concepts of like changing how biological systems work. And this really applies to all sorts of biological changes, not just like human modification. It's just like things work in equilibrium. And when you push things outside of their normal state, um, something else usually buckles a little bit in the system. Uh, so for instance, like with nootropics, um, like smart drugs, uh, there's some very decent research about um, getting you up to what I would call baseline. Like it's easy to get up to baseline. Like if you had maybe smoked a lot or drank a lot when you were younger or you know, you got sick and then you had some sort of like focus issue or something like that, just like constant control. Like getting up out of that is to like normal is, um, is, is a lot easier than pushing up above that. Like trying to make super anything, uh, always requires uh, way more energy. And so if you talk about like uh, bacterial modification or plant modification, there's a term called metabolic burden. And it's basically like the modification that you put into the organism outstrips the amount of processing that the organism can do. And so it can't like run the process and keep itself alive simultaneously. Um, but there are very rarely instances where things just stop expressing genes and so they just die. So what you end up having is like, maybe you made a really cool gene of interest and you put it into a bacteria and you're like, this is gonna be cool. It's going to, I don't know, uh, make, like lavender oil like we're just going to make a right because the lavender scent is an expression of a gene on some level it's a metabolic pathway um but it works in a plant that evolved it it's kind of a complex system if you take that entire thing and you smack it into a bacteria it might just break it might just be too much for it to make um 
So, so just a little bit more is actually pretty great, I think, because it's what you need. It's the difference between, uh, you know, tripping and not tripping when you're out at night or, um, you know, the difference between getting older and having night blindness and not having night blindness. So, um, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, so what you said the overlap between the hype and the reality, mm -hmm. there, there is of what is called the biohacking movement. Um, and you can decide for yourself if that's an appropriate term. Um, there has been, and you mentioned this, the comparison of the early days of the PC revolution when mm -hmm. a bunch of hackers in their garage and sort of piecing things together, but there wasn't really this commercial explosion. Um, right. Do you think that that is a fair comparison? Do you see a trajectory here that you're thinking to yourself, like, oh my God, in 20 years, I'm, I'm going to be kingpin Bill Gates of... Uh, I have, okay, so first, just on a personal note, I have a very um, weird relationship with money in as much as that, like, I... That is never a goal for me. <laughs> money has, money is, it exists expressly because capitalism is the water that we swim in. Um, so I need it to like feed my cats, uh, but I don't really care about it otherwise. Um, but the other, so there's, there's two things at play here. So another Venn overlap. Um, there's, how the technology actually works. And we're gonna call biotech uh, technology, um, even though it's completely unlike any other human technology in as much as that we don't really understand how biology works. So um, it's more like reverse engineering all the time in a language that you don't speak. Um, and then, um, so there's how how biotech works, and then there's how all of our previous techs have worked. And due to the success of the computer revolution, um, there has been kind of a a push to skip the developmental stage of how things go about. So when you look in the biohacking community right now, you do see a lot of people that are trying to make products. They're doing startups. You got all of those fake foods or like lab built foods, which are really just like the most obnoxious form of greenwashing. And I, I don't know if the people working on them are doing it on purpose or not, but like it is definitely not um, like a smaller ecological footprint than having cows like make big meat. Like like, okay, well, so yeah, I mean, I can get more into that about like why that entire narrative is bullshit, but I'm going to try to answer your question before I forget. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, um, so there's this push to see biotechnology like computer technology, and it's not. And so the, the concept that you'd be able to apply the same rule sets to scaling how this technology is applied um, uh, doesn't really work that way. Uh, for instance, uh, biology is still really expensive. Now, yes, things are getting cheaper and that's just kind of the way things work. Hardware starts off really expensive, it gets really cheap, but like certain things aren't going to get cheaper. Um, chemicals are really expensive, you know, and the process for making purified chemicals hasn't fundamentally changed in quite a long time because like 
chemistry, it's already like the smallest amount of things that you can do with a material, right? Um, the other thing is that biology is alive. So um, not to anthropomorphize very much, but it has goals that are like diametrically opposed to human goals. Like the bacteria don't care about you. Um, we think that like, we're really, really smart for figuring out how to put insulin into yeast. And this is how we make, but like, remember how I talked about metabolic burden? Yeah. Like bacteria and yeast figure out how to edit out our, our the things that we put into it because it, there's, it's a metabolic stress making insulin doesn't actually help the organism that we've put it into. Um, we're purely harvesting it just for our own means. And so all of our genetic engineering tools mostly come from bacteria, which means they're way, way better at it than we are. Like we're like, you know, five years old with a pair of like rounded scissors kind of half covered in paste and pieces of construction paper and you know bacteria are like out there with the fancy shears just like cutting and snipping and pasting away um so we're still really clumsy with how we use the technology it just doesn't because it doesn't want to do what we want it to do when you try to turn it on or to make it do something sometimes it just doesn't want to and that's something we talk about our computers like that, but on some level, it's, it's always code. Like they say, you know, the problem is usually somewhere in between the keyboard and the chair. Right. We have other actors in the biological realm and we never really like to pay attention to them, but they're way more um, powerful and prevalent than we let on and sometimes the bacteria just don't want to do whatever it is that you want to do very difficult when you don't speak bacteria to try to collaborate with the organism that is going to be doing production for you and it just says no and the other thing is you have to keep them alive you have to keep them at the right temperature like they're living organisms heck lots of people can't keep house plants alive and then you have to give them the right food right so there's this constant influx of different chemicals and materials and like if you're doing mammalian cell culture which is kind of like at the core of a lot of our medical research um mammalian cell culture really relies on fetal bovine serum which is um so like <laughs> this ties back around to the fake meat thing like if you're growing if you're growing mammalian cells you are growing them in a there are options to not do this but they're on the outside like they're not standard so if you're growing mammalian cells you're growing them in fetal bovine syrup which is literally blood that has been drained from a fetus while it's still alive inside of a mother cow and then purified. Um, so, you know, that has to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, the, what you're talking about <laughs> seems to be kind of related to the, the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos drama where they tried to apply this Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things. Their, their device was called the Edison, which of course yeah. Edison actually did. He sort of pioneered the Silicon Valley way of <clears throat> claiming you had some breakthrough technology, attracting a lot and of it, investors and then making it happen. And, and sometimes stealing it from someone else. Yeah. And sometimes stealing it from somebody else. Um, There's a lot of that going on in the biohacking community. All those little biohacker startups. Oh my god! Well, well see, that's that's what I'm. I'm, I'm kind of um, a couple things. I guess I'm alluding to here. One is the fact, as you mentioned, that 
what what may work in the world of bits does not really work in the world of biology. Um, and the other aspect, I suppose, has to do with something you said earlier, where you're like, well, and, and I think is admirable of like, oh, I don't care about money, you know, I, you know, I, it's a tool to live my life, but it's not something I'm really searching for. But of course, there were a lot of people in the early days of the PC revolution who felt the same way and who had a lot of idealistic goals. And then people like Steve Jobs and people like Bill Gates came along and sort of shaped that world into what it became. Do you worry that that's what's going to happen? I worry that it's happening now, but I'm less worried because remember how I mentioned, like, if you want to make a product, you will make a product. Yeah. So like all of these startups are like very product focused and, and so there's going to be, I think a glut of useless or subpar technology that is developed. And I mean, currently the, success rate for biotech startups is 2%. Like, which is just, I mean, well, that's not viable. Um, And yeah, and then you just have this like glut of subpar stuff because you're so focused on making a product that you're, um, that you're like the way that, the way that the scientific method is supposed to work is that you have a hypothesis and then you test a hypothesis, right? And this, this means that you're not looking for an answer. Like you create a series of tests and then you look at the results. Whereas product making is about already having a goal. You know, so research is about finding out what's over there through a very rigid series of tests and product design is about trying to find the series of things that gets you to a very specific goal. And so instead of having a full collection of data and a more comprehensive understanding of how things work, you have some sort of weird squiggly line that technically gets you to the point that you want to be at but is usually flawed because you're cherry picking your data and what you want it to do. Um, so, so there's, that is just going to happen. Like if, if everything gets focused on making, making products like that, that will be the end result. There's no way to avoid it. Um, a great example is like the number of passive play apps, like the app stores are just filled with like a hundred iterations on touch this button 40 times and get a hit of dopamine. And they're all crap. They're all crap. And nobody's ever going to pay for them. So you have to load it up with advertisements and then everybody gets really fucking tired of the advertisements and then they delete your app. You know, there's so many things out there and most of it is garbage because the first people figured out how to make some money off of it. And then everybody followed that without knowing that there are other directions that you can take the technology. I see. Um, yeah. Uh, in the very long run, I would like to see more small community labs and stuff like that, just because I think when things get really, really big, they end up losing focus as well. But individual private labs uh, tend to hit like an echo chamber type of issue. Um, And running a lab is a lot of hard work. And so, you know, doing, it's not like, hey, I got to make sure I plugged in my phone and that my computer 
you know, has been defragged or whatever. It's like you got to go around and water all your animals or plants or bacteria, depending on what field you're in. And like if the electricity goes out and my computer turns off, when the electricity comes back on, I just turn my computer back on. If the electricity goes out here, I've got a minus 80 uh, Celsius freezer. Yeah. It's like really, really cold and is absolutely necessary for storing some of my materials. And if the electricity goes out, I'm going to lose like $10,000 worth of materials because they're all just going to come up to room temp and they're going to spoil, right. you know? Um which is why I'm investing in a backup generator because yeah. it's just a matter of time until somebody knocks over a power cable and then boom, you're screwed. Well, you, you said something earlier that I thought was interesting was that the technology that it, it takes to do anything meaningful or non true mm -hmm. in this space tends to be rather expensive. Are things like mm -hmm. the, the gene editing technology, is that making things cheaper or is this just always going to require a lot of capital? I mean, it is, it is making. So like it's making the, the individual process less expensive, but the infrastructure is still really expensive. Like minus 80 freezers. Um, changing the method for gene modification doesn't change the fact that I need a minus 80 freezer. I have two refrigerators dedicated to science. I've got a whole complex system of filters and air purification and UVC bulbs and normal bulbs and everything that need to be run and cycled and stuff like that. And none of that is changing. Most of the hardware, like like gloves. When I'm actively doing mammalian cell work, like when I have a project that is a mammalian cell project and I'm working on, I'll, I will go through a box of gloves. So like one, one box in like two days because I'm following, you know, proper handling protocol and taking notes and fiddling around with other stuff. So like, I mean, you can have access to an inexpensive technology, but the infrastructure that supports it, there's just a lot of stuff, you know? And one pair of gloves is not expensive, but like I buy gloves by the case and I use them. Paper towels too, lots of paper towels. Isopropyl alcohol, tons of that. And it's not like isopropyl is getting cheaper. <laughs> okay. So in, in other words, <clears throat> something like Moore's law where, where, you know, chips get uh, cheaper and cheaper over time, that there's no real equivalent of that in this space. Not there's some of that. So like genetic sequencing has gotten cheaper and cheaper over time. Um, we've really seen some impressive stuff just in the last five years. Um, printing things has gotten less expensive, significantly less expensive. Um, but the reason it's less expensive is because I send out to a company that has the pre-existing hardware, which is freakishly expensive, but you know, they make a business out of it. And then you, you do a whole bunch of that and then it doesn't, you know, you've paid for your infrastructure and then you're making profit. But there's always like the disposables and stuff like that. Uh, the cost of gloves is not going down. Um, fetal bovine serum is really fucking expensive. It's like, uh, you know what? I don't even store that number in my head because it's always really unpleasant to think about. Um, but it's really expensive because it comes from technically two cows and there's a whole purification process. And the purification process is so 
hyper specific and and important that you actually can get different grades based off of which country you get it from. You're like, okay, so like, are you doing like casual research or are you doing like hard research? Because like, if you're doing casual research, you can get yourself some of that American fetal bovine serum and that's fine. It'll do the thing. But if you want like top grade, then you got to get the New Zealand stuff. And I am not arbitrarily picking, that is an actual thing. You want that, you want that, that New Zealand fetal cow. Is there any part of you that like you talk to your friends from grown up and you're like, man, like I'm just trying to get some New Zealand fetal bovine serum. It's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, most of the people that I talk with are like, They've either known me for long enough that they're like, yep, it's just another day we're talking about this stuff. Um, uh, I think that anybody who spends a lot of time doing work or like has like a niche field that they've been in for a long time will sometimes sound weird to other people that aren't in, in the field. Um, but also some of the stuff is like bonus strange. So like, you know, like all of the human modification stuff always kind of like when you meet new people, like you're kind of, you, you can kind of figure out where the rest of the conversation is going to go based off of how comfortable they are with the concept of like having something as simple as an RFID in, implanted. Um, and, you know, the fact that like I have a BSL two lab, like a biosafety level two certified lab. That's um, everybody's used to institutions having those. They're really not used to people having those, like individuals. So it's it's weird. Like it's it sometimes weirds people out when like uh, like for the last four years I've been working on a project with herpes, right? And so like on a casual day, I'm talking about like infecting African green monkey cells with, with a modified herpes. And you know, that's, that's a weird what, conversation. What are you doing with herpes, by the way? Um, we're trying okay. to make a- Makes sense, but yes, go ahead. It, it, kind of like a live attenuated vaccine. Um, So this is like, um, like it's the entirety of the herpes, but then it's been like cut and modified. So it, it still replicates. It's still as alive as a virus is alive, but it, it works differently. And so one of the things that herpes is really good at is hiding like your immune system can't see it. Um, and that's because of some glycoproteins on its, on its surface. It's kind of like a cloaking mechanism. Um, and then, uh, and then also, you know, when people have like flares and stuff like that, uh, the, the herpes takes its, its genetic material and puts it into your neurons, like your nerves. And, and then only comes out during flares. And so it deconstructs itself and then hides from the body that way as well. So if you make a version of herpes that is visible and not capable of hiding um, in, in, in the neural system, uh, then your immune system can recognize it and potentially this acts as like a prophylactic. So I got to be really careful with the terminology here because this is not a standard method of making a vaccine. And so um, like words like cure are generally frowned upon. Yeah. Um, But, 
but creating a prophylactic or potentially a therapeutic is what it's aiming for. And that project has actually been picked up for animal testing now. So it's very exciting. That's way more progress. That's a lot of progress for four years. And, you know, it's a three person team that's been working on this. So that's huge. And this is kind of what I want to see to go all the way back to like how I was, you know, what we were talking about. This is kind of what I want to see. It's like, okay, with proper amount of oversight, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in the biohacking community that have gotten on the narrative that like, the man is trying to keep you down and that like, oh, I'd love to learn how to do biology, but, um, you know, this company won't sell to me because they only ship the business addresses. And it's like, so start a business. It, like I started my first business and it incorporated in Washington state because I lived in Washington state. It was like a $60 filing fee. Starting an LLC is like stupid easy. Oh, yeah. All you need to do is, all you need to do is have an LLC. Get yourself a bank account, do your taxes, do the proper paperwork, turn your house into a business address. Or, you know, get a business address or have a friend who already has a business be your mailing address for materials. Totally works. You can do all of this stuff. We can, we can actually accomplish things, but like, The system feels rigged sometimes because it's so easy to exploit some of the rule systems. And because if you have a lot of money, you basically just stomp on everything around you. Yeah. But, but a lot of the rules, especially about ethical oversight and like the procedure from moving from like experimentation, requiring second party verification, like doing certain types of testing. Like if you just follow off the checklist, you can do these things, but it's like anything else. You wouldn't, you know, uh, say you're going to start a restaurant, but, you know, the government's trying to keep me down by sending a health instructor in. It's like, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you want people to wash their hands after they use the bathroom. Like, uh, you wouldn't compl- you wouldn't complain about that. So why is it all of a sudden that you're complaining about this over here? And the answer is that's just the story now. Like the whole hacker revolution thing never really worked out the way that they thought it would. And so now everyone's jumping on the bio train. It's like, no. I mean, you don't have to sacrifice yourself to the god of commerce. You just gotta like follow some paperwork. Yeah, I do paperwork all the time. Yes. I, I'm, okay. So a, a couple things. Um, it seems like, and some of the oversight you're talking about is really important for some of the more controversial aspects of what's going on here. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about some of that. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. you talked about um, earlier in this conversation, like you know. Uh, making super intelligent humans or something like that. Um, as a, uh-huh. you know, modif- modifying, uh, you know, something in your eye, which as you pointed out, is like relatively in comparison. So, and, and there have been studies of like, um, or there have been, uh, apparently you can modify genes in utero and you could just, do that a bunch of times for different gener- for a successive number of generations, as opposed to having children. Is, is this? Am I am I talking crazy right now, or is this something that could be happening? It's it's it, so modifying genes in utero is something that we can do already. Um, do you remember the movie Gattaca? No. Okay, so Gattaca, all about like genetic screening and then like choosing the egg and the sperm that had the the pre-existing traits that you wanted 
right? Because it's kind of a smorgasbord of all of your genes. I mean, your parents, you are 50-50 of your parents. But like what 50% that is, is kind of randomized. Um, but like that technology already exists. That movie came out and everybody was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And it's like, this is like a very standard practice. Like people do genetic testing and screening to make sure that their baby doesn't have like some sort of thing which is gonna cause them to be stillborn and, you know, kill the mother six months into the pregnancy. Like this is already pre-existing technology. The ability to use this technology falls very much into the, you need to really know what you're doing and have a tremendous amount of very expensive hardware. So that becoming something that you're gonna casually do at a, in your home lab, you know, uh, or like what, go door to door, like some sort of Frankenstein midwife, like checking the babies with your home service kit now. But the other, the other thing is, and so you brought up intelligence, like, so what does super intelligent mean? Can you, can you qualify that? Because you can, you can qualify what works, but I mean, one of the things that we're finding out is that like, just because you're not really good at doing one thing that somebody thinks is important doesn't mean that you're not intelligent. And on top of that, we really, like when I say we don't know how biology works, it's double that for the brain. We have no fucking clue how the brain works. If you got every neuro person in the world into one giant Zoom call, we would have, I think, the estimate. And I, so I'm, I'm not backing this up, but I could, could dig up the information. And so it's available. Like we only understand like 2% of how the brain works. So the concept of, well, I'm going to go in there and make the brain better. Like, you know, if the only thing you ever learned how to do was um, put a nail into a two by four, you wouldn't ever attempt to tell someone that you're going to build them an entire house. It's like a good house that's up to code, right? So that's where we're at with that. It, it's still really, really far out because we don't know what we're doing. And, and just, yeah, the concept of intelligence is amorphous and situationally specific. So you could make somebody who's really, really good at math. But again, when you move people away from their baseline, something else usually bends or breaks. So uh, you remember that, what is it, uh, TCDS? transcranial direct stimulation you put electrodes on your head sure, yeah. and then you zap the brain and then your memory increases for a short period of time your ability to like learn or depending on where you put it you can uh like tweak hand-eye coordination all sorts of stuff like based off of the different places where you put electrodes you can find you can you can tweak different aspects of what the brain is good at and again, it's, it's only partial understanding. And so for a while, everyone was really, really excited about this. And the fact that the government, the United States government had been using it to train snipers and stuff like that, people were like, yeah, this is the stuff right here. But once people got excited about it, more research went into it. And then they were like, oh yeah, it turns out that like, you can tweak hand-eye coordination, but it like, you see a decrease in verbal skills or you can tweak your, tweak your memory, but it, it fucks with something else. And so there's always this, this trade in biological systems because biology is about equilibrium and things balancing each other out from uh, how our metabolic processes work all the way up to predator prey dynamics. And whenever you tweak something, you break it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, it, how does that then 
applied to a concept like designer babies, where you have the idea of being able to edit the the genome of their offspring so that they're just rock stars. They're super good looking, super smart, same deal. Okay, yeah, exactly. And then beyond that is, again, like I said, it's situational. So the concepts of attractiveness are not set in stone. So like somebody who was considered super good looking during the Renaissance does not follow the same metrics for attractiveness that we use currently. Um, like symmetry is like one of the only things that really like maintains, but uh, skin tone, ear shape, different types of noses and chins, eye placement, all of that stuff. I'm just going with the head here. There's a whole bunch of body. Um, all of that changes from era to era with what our metrics are for attractiveness. Um, so uh, the long-term ramifications of locking someone into a system which may be outdated before they get old is a really bad idea. Just from like a legal point of view, like what if your parents were under some sort of contractual obligation, like they couldn't have kids. And so to get kids, so to get kids, um, you know, they went to a company that agreed to pay for the process to help them have kids. But the side effect is the only type of pants that you're ever going to be allowed to wear for the rest of your life are bell bottoms because bell bottoms are back in because it's 1993. Um, remember that phase where everybody was just like really into the 70s again? I was born in 1994. So I. I oh, okay. I, I imagine. You can conceptualize. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the same way that we're getting to the late end of the 80s right now in terms of things that people are excited about from an aesthetics point of view. So what if you always had to wear bell bottoms? And this was just kind of like the, the price that you have to pay for being born. Like, you would hate that. You would sue so hard <laughs> when you understood what had been done to you. Like, you know, when you put it within that framework, that is a really extreme violation of your rights, right? Yeah, totally. And even if somebody makes you a super baby, like at some point you're going to like, you know what designer babies can turn into? Designer teenagers. Yeah. And, and, and so if, uh, you know, trying to convince a kid that it's a good idea to eat all the vegetables on their plate causes a week-long tantrum and lack of communication and door slamming and moping, just imagine knowing that your entire life was altered without your permission before you were even born. Oh my God. On some level though, isn't that true? Like none of us chose to be born. So on the most fundamental life, on the most fundamental point, we're all here involuntarily. Being born is a baseline thing. Like, yes, none of us chose to be born, um, but uh, it's one of the core aspects of being a mammal. Like you have, like there, there are literally only a handful of things you need to do to be a successful mammal. You need to eat and drink water. You need to sleep and you need to engage in sex. Like it's, it's the, the barest of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Every mammal needs these things, food, water, sleep, and sex. So that's kind of baseline there. Um, any modification past that 
is outside of like standard biological reality and because of someone's ego you know yeah like it, again again we're getting into yeah sure you didn't ask to be born but you definitely didn't ask to join foot the football team so that your dad could live out his dreams of being a successful high school football player and instead he's shuffled all that shit onto you like right. you know this trope right of course so so take that but the thing is that you could always quit the football team or you can put up with it until you move out and then never play football again you can't quit your genetics so your parents have made a choice about how they're going to basically fundamentally alter the way that you are in a way that is permanent. Yeah. That's a little different. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious, we're almost at an hour here and I don't want to take it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, what is it that you're doing these days? I know you're working at uh, Sci House. I'm curious the kinds of things that you guys are, are working on. Right. So, uh, like I said, the, the herpes uh, therapy is in animal testing, um, which is good because I kind of got really burnt out on that. Um, working with mammalian cells is simultaneously easy and a huge pain in the ass. Um, so let's see, um, we're working on another project that I'm really excited about called Ents. We're just calling it the Ents Project because it's funny. What? It's a Tolkien, it's a Tolkien yeah. reference. Yeah, my bad. Um, so it's about uh, genetically modifying trees to grow bigger and faster. And you can actually see that there are some startups that have started using this just in the last couple of years. Luckily, we've been working on it for many years. Um, so, uh, and using that for like rapid reforestation and rapid afforestation with a complex ecosystem is something that I've always been really passionate about. So I'm looking forward to being able to do that. Um, we're always working with Kaidazen. So biomaterial work is kind of like, it's easy to get into, and then the applications are almost endless. And chitin is the second most bioavailable material on the planet after cellulose. Um, and so there's a lot of it. And it, if there's a lot of something, it means that it fills a lot of different niches. And so you can make stuff that's strong that's antibacterial that's used for drug delivery that's bendy and flexible that's biodegradable it's like it's this huge huge uh, thing you can basically find any biology or chemistry research and then you just type in the word chitosan in front of it when you're doing a search and there's a paper about it there's always a paper about chitosan um I'm working with some friends, more as like an independent contractor, um, to do some uh, water collection. So like uh, de-desertification technologies. Um, it's kind of, it's in an initial stages. We're not really sure if we're going to go more chemistry or biology with that yet. That's kind of a new project. And then... Um, project where we're trying to alter the process by which we mine um, rare earth metals uh, by using algae. So there's that too. There's a lot of different stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it's a fascinating world. Um, if there were someone out there who uh, wanted to get involved they might be an engineer but they don't have a uh, biology background or something like that mm -hmm. uh, what would you suggest to a hypothetical person like that um i know a lot of those hypothetical people um so we have a discord sci-house has a discord and you can go there and there's a bunch of people that 
are just getting into biology or chemistry. And then there's a bunch of people that are um, already working in laboratories. So there's a really nice mix. And the, I mean, the most important thing is like talking with people and learning about these things and communicating. Because if, you know, if you wanna build something and your background is in engineering, but this thing is going to interact with biology, which technically everything does, whether we like it or not, um, you, you are going to need some of that framework to understand how those systems fail or influence what you're working on. And so talking with people that are on the other side of the educational spectrum uh, and, and finding that middle ground is really, really great for the individuals, but it's also really, really great for propagating new ideas. Um, you know, so talk to people that don't, that aren't in your field, um, find groups of like-minded individuals and be skeptical of um, anything that sounds magical and perfect. <laughs> Okay. Whenever somebody's like, oh, I have a simple solution to this. It's like, no, it's probably going to be wrong. Um, there are very, very rarely simple solutions in the world of biology. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, uh, do you have mm -hmm. you, to plug or do you want people to know about or, or just to get off your chest before we go here? Yeah, I mean... I think I kind of ranted about all the things that I would normally rant about. Um, uh, but yeah, if, um, if you want to support uh, SciHouse, we have uh, Kofi. So it's kofi.com slash SciHouse. And you can just do a little donation or a monthly donation. And that allows us to buy things like gloves and fetal bovine serum and stuff like that, uh, those, those reoccurring stuff. So it doesn't have to be a lot. It's just, um, we go through a lot of gloves. And if you wanna learn more, um, like I said, there's the dis uh, Discord, it's just called SciHouse. And um, on Wednesdays, we talk about journal papers so that people can get exposed to some hardcore material uh, to things that are outside of their field. And um, on Fridays, we kind of do a lab chat where people just talk about their projects. And so this can go from biomaterials or it can be about plants. Sometimes it's about food like fermentation. Sometimes it's about code or electronics or like building an Arduino system to do some hyper-specific tasks. So it can be anything, but it's a good place to run into people that know a whole bunch about something that you might know nothing about. Lovely. Uh, Gabriel, thank you very much for your time. And, uh, yeah. Cool. Have a good one. Thanks. Thank you to Gabriel Lacina and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>